0: This is TechSnap, episode 412, September 20th, 2019. Hello, and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jim. What's up, Wes? Well, Jim, we've got a great show today. Why don't we start it off with a
1: little gadget you've been telling me about? Surefy. Yeah, this whole Surefy thing is is pretty cool. I I got this weird email, unsolicited email from a guy at a PR firm, and he was saying that he had this device that would transmit over fifty miles, or you know, one mile of heavy obstructions, and you know, he wanted me to. And this is a direct quote here: "Take the Wi-Fi challenge." Pretty much pegged my WTF meter. When you peg the WTF meter, I, I got to find out what you're on about. So, you know, I, I told the guy, I'm cautiously interested. And uh, he got me in touch with the uh, the company's president and founder, who seemed about as flummoxed as I was. And he's like, yeah, we don't say Wi-Fi channel. This, this isn't a replacement for consumer Wi-Fi. It's low bandwidth, 900 megahertz. It's, you know, for use with industrial controllers, Uh, You know, they just need to do a little telemetry and and control stuff. That's different. It is different. And, you know, we got it this like the worst possible way because I'm asking like, you know, what's the interface on this? Like, how do I hook it up to my laptop? You know, yada, yada, yada. And and what it actually boils down to is they have this little test device they'll send you so you can play with it and see if it'll, you know, work in your environment. And uh, it's just a couple of, you know, like little handheld boxes with a button and some LEDs on it. And when you press the button on either one of them, it will communicate with the other one, and they will both light up with, you know, from zero to six LEDs to tell you, you know, what signal strength they're seeing. As as long as you got one or more LEDs, they are good to go. Okay, it's it's not a Wi-Fi replacement, uh, obviously. Um, Turns out the actual bandwidth is, you know, usually about 300 bits per second. Say that again. Three hundred bits. Three, yeah, yeah, three hundred bits per second. Uh, three hundred baud, like my old external modem in nineteen eighty six, um, which which was not you know high end gear even then. You know, even back then, twenty four hundred baud was uh, what you wanted to have. But uh, y- you don't want to browse the internet over this thing. Obviously, it would take you right. you know a, about an hour and a half to download the front page of Ars Technica without any of the graphics in it. But
0: it might work just great for, yeah, you know, as you say, like monitoring or just trying to control some piece of equipment.
1: Yeah, if you do the math, three hundred bits per second is about the equivalent of a two hundred and twenty-five word per minute typist. So you can definitely get some data moved. I'd say. Yeah, as long as you're just looking for the data, bare bones, you know, you're not trying to sling JPEGs, let alone video or anything like that. But if you want to be like, hey, you know, what's the reading on these meters and I want you to open relay number three, works great for that. How'd they do? How'd they perform? And how did you actually go about testing them? So they actually did fantastic. Um, yeah, I broke open the kit and uh, checked the batteries and turned these things on. And um, the first thing that the PR guy had suggested to me, you know, when he's giving me this wild pitch that confused his client as much as it did me, he's saying, you know, you can put one of these things in the microwave and close the door and uh, they'll communicate with it just fine. I'm like, all right, well, yeah, it's absolutely, let's give that a shot. Because, you know, it's, it's the closest thing to a Faraday cage most people have got in their house. Right. I mean, microwaves are designed to try to block the
0: radiation being used to, to cook the food.
1: Yeah. So uh, I stick one of these things in the microwave and close the door. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm looking at the one in the microwave and I press the button on the one that I'm holding in my hand. And I mean, you know, six bars, full strength, like the microwave just wasn't even there at all. And I'm like, OK, you, you got my attention now. Like, I mean, I, I knew I figured to expect, OK, it's definitely going to communicate, you know, through the microwave. But I was not expecting just... Full strength, you know, like there's nothing at all in the way. Yeah, microwave, who cares? Yeah, so my next step is, uh, you know, a- anybody who's read any of my Wi-Fi test articles is probably familiar by now with the fact that, you know, my office is just an absolute horrible dungeon to try to get Wi-Fi to because, um, you know, it's it's cut off from the rest of the house by, uh, you know, like, like 20 feet of dirt because, you know, I've got like a half floor partial basement where my office is. And, you know, that, that is featured in, like, all of my Wi-Fi testing because, you know, it's one of your challenges. Like, you know, can can you get around that? And the answer is if it's a single router, no, you can't. But, you know, if it's mesh, then you, you need to be able to manage that one way or the other. I like that. It's like a real-world test case because it's it is your real home. Exactly. So, you know, with Wi-Fi mesh, you know, you can get around it a couple of ways. You the simplest way is, you know, as long as you just got two devices and you can put one in, you know, the the router closet where the internet comes in and one in, you know, like the the living room dining room area which is actually directly above, you know, the bottom floor. You say, "Okay, well, you know, we can relay to the uh, satellite that's above the bottom floor and get a pretty decent Wi-Fi signal through the floor." The other option, you know, if you've got a a kit with three or more units, um, if they'll do a good tree topology. Uh, you know not not just uh star topology, then, in theory, you can relay from the router to one on the top floor and then down through the floor to an actual node on the bottom floor and assuming you 've got a kit that works well in a tree topology, which most of them don't that's that's going to be it's typically your best configuration it'll give you the lowest it'll give you the lowest latency even if it doesn 't give you the highest possible throughput and that 's usually what you 're shooting for but my next step with the Surefire was to go downstairs, and uh, I, I put one in the office, and I ran back upstairs and up to the router closet, and I pressed the button, and again, it's just like six bars. It is unimpressed with my difficult house to cover. Huh. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Now, now we're going to take this thing seriously, and I go back downstairs. So my office is yeah, it's it's where we're casting. It's where I'm casting this pod from right now, and uh, I've got a uh, I've got a, a nice Logitech webcam that's mounted on my monitor. But you know, it's not like an eyeball cam, right? It's like clipped to the top of the monitor. It doesn't, you can't really like pan or, or zoom it. It's just facing at face level. So I'm like, all right, I, I know my plan. I want to get one of these things in the field of the webcam. And I'm going to set set up, uh, you know, a video meeting in Google Hangouts with like my Ars Technica address connected and my personal address connected so that, you know, I can see this thing elsewhere and make sure that both boxes light up the same, right?
0: Oh, yeah. You got, like, your little uh, nanny cam going, but uh, on your test equipment.
1: Yeah, yeah, So I I end up just taking, like, a little cloth uh, glasses bag, you know, like you put, uh, you know, sunglasses in or something, and I shove one of these things in that, and then I actually hang the drawstring, this thing, off of the big studio mic that I'm using to to podcast right now. I'll pretend I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that gets it visible for the camera. So, like, now I'm set up, and I, I do a quick, you know, test press, and Yeah, these, you know, the LEDs are super bright. I can see them through the bag just fine. So I'm like, all right, sweet. I go get in the car and um, I drive about a half a mile away out to the main highway. And now again, you know, the the one end of this thing, it's down in the basement, right? And my house is about like a, a third of the way down a pretty big hill. And to get out to the main highway, you have to go over the crest of the hill and back down again. So like I've passed the crest of this hill, And so I'm going through, like, the hill and down to the basement of my house, half a mile away, uh, you know, houses, all kinds of buildings, you know, whatever in the way. And I hit the button, and I got three bars, man. Oh. It's solid. So... Yeah. Yeah, my next uh, – and, you know, I, I drove around more, and, uh, you know, I got out of range of it. And, you know, I'm I'm watching, like, in my phone where I've got, you know, my, my little Google, uh, you know, meeting going so I can watch and see. You're checking up on it back at the office. <laughs> yeah, because I'm paranoid. I'm like, I, you know, I don't want to get, like, tricked by something. Like, you know, they've got it rigged up. Right,
0: if it's just yours is lighting up, but the other one isn't.
1: Yeah, and, and so, no, I mean, they, they're clearly communicating because they always agree in real time. They light up the same number of things. And I, I get, you know, out of range, which is not much farther away than that half mile, you know, with all that dirt in the way too. Sure. Um, And once once I get the rest of the way out of range, get a little bit more hill in between, you know, I it, it does not light up at all. It's like, you know, no, I, I can't contact the other one. But so at this point, like, I'm like, all right, this is pretty cool. Also by the way that's a that's a pretty cute image. I'm
0: just imagine you driving around madly pushing the button on this thing, checking back in at home right
1: look looking down at my phone, like sitting on the passenger seat, just glancing down like making sure that the lights match, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I'm like, okay, so that's really cool, but i want I want to check it out in like you know a little bit more open kind of train where I'm at, you know literally like punching through a freaking hill, and my mom's house is about thirty five miles away in a really rural area. And uh it's just I mean it's it's nothing but you know a like a mile or so of woods all the way around the house, right sounds lovely by the way, oh, it is man. it's awesome. I head out there and I put one of these things uh in the living room of her house, and I drive around the back roads to uh this this little church that is just under a mile away as the crow flies. And it's going through, I mean, it's it's heavy wooded terrain the whole way, almost a mile from this church to the house. And again, this thing at the house, like, I mean, it's not like out in the yard. It's not sitting on the roof. It's in the freaking house, right? Um, it's probably going through their metal storage shed with a tractor in it as well, you know, from the general angle that I'm at. And yeah, I, I get two bars there. Um, almost a mile away, you know, through through heavy terrain. I'd- yeah, it's you know, it's impressive. Obviously, you have
0: to have the right use case for it, but it takes a, a good amount of, you know, science and, and, and physics at play here and then a lot of engineering to make something that's going to be that robust in the real world.
1: Yeah, so the way these things work is it's – if you've ever – I don't know. If any of you folks out there are military technology buffs, you've probably at least heard something about, you know, RF chirp technology. Um, Basically, it's a widespread spectrum, and these things will try to – they'll, they'll try to route around, you know, any kind of jamming, they'll find a frequency in their overall range that works and they don't only use one frequency. Like it hops around it's very, very difficult to jam and it's not, it's not high bandwidth, you know, here we're only talking about like 300 bits per second, but also, you know, we're talking about 900 megahertz that will go through, you know, a hundred feet of dirt. So I tested this thing, you know, at this one client where I'd had that, you know, long running war and uh f- so for there, they've got a mechanical room downstairs, it's about twenty feet underground in a main building. And then over in another building where the uh HVAC unit itself is, the HVAC unit is about eight feet underground. And I measured the distance between the two with Google Maps and came out with a hundred with it's about a hundred and four feet in between the two locations through packed earth. And uh two bars, <laughs> 104 feet, packed dirt, two bars. Right. I mean, think about that. There's
0: a lot of applications. If you've got a non-ideal workspace situation where you just need signal, you don't have a whole lot of money to spend on retrofitting or, or digging through a whole bunch of dirt
1: to get a connection th- across. Or, or just, I mean, you know, even then eventually, I mean, right now it's probably too expensive for that, but eventually in the consumer space, you know, imagine like all of this, you know, low bandwidth IOT garbage that's, you know, junking up your, uh, your Wi-Fi right now and eating up all this airtime, you know, do it next to nothing instead those things could just be you know chirping to each other and not messing up your wi-fi at all
0: well that's certainly a world i hope we live in sometime soon
1: all right wes so as long as we're talking about wireless and rf this and that and the other uh did you see that uh, the wi-fi alliance has opened up their wi-fi 6 certification program wait wi-fi 6 uh did we have wi-fi 5 yeah, we did. Uh, you know, Wi-Fi five was eight hundred two eleven AC. Wi-Fi four was eight hundred two eleven N. Wi-Fi six is eight hundred two eleven AX, and uh, eight hundred two eleven AY just doesn't get a Wi-Fi number because f you. That's why. Okay, so we've we've both got like some new tech here, a new a new protocol, and a new naming scheme to boot. Yeah, and everybody's just gonna have to get used to it. Um they really, really want everybody to say Wi Fi five and wi fi six now, and uh that's gonna be what's on all the boxes, and pretty soon it's just gonna be us engineer types that say things like eight oh two eleven AX. So anyway, where you know, where we're actually at with this thing. If you remember when eight oh two eleven N came out in particular, you know, we had like a year of seeing eight oh two eleven N draft devices come out. Ah, I think I may have bought one of those back then. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, about a year after that, you start seeing, you know, actual 802.11n certified. So that's where we're at with Wi Fi 6 right now. Um, A lot of people have released uh, routers and access points and what have you that were uh, Wi Fi 6 ish, but like technically those are all Wi Fi 6 draft. The certification program from the Wi Fi Alliance basically to use their branding and say you have a Wi Fi 6 certified device, you have to put your device through their testing program, you know, whatever that happens to be, and then you're allowed to say that on the box. Now, I, I think the thing that's most worth noting about this is that since we're in that that stage of the deployment now, that means that consumers are going to start and should start, you know, actually looking for Wi-Fi 6 capability on new devices they purchase. Ah, uh-huh, right. Like, it, this is actually going to be rolled out now that you can get the stamp and, and look official. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing about that, uh, some advice I want to give everybody, don't go rushing out, like, just dying to buy a Wi-Fi 6 router or access point right now. That's not what you need to buy first. Buy the devices first. Like, you know, if you're up for a new phone, uh, you know, try to make sure that your new phone has Wi-Fi 6 capability, like, uh, you know, Samsung's uh, Galaxy 10 and uh, the iPhone 11 and Google Pixel 4. You should start at this point saying, okay, if the thing that I buy isn't Wi-Fi 6, I should be making sure I get a really good deal on that because that's going to bite me in a couple of years. It's not really time to buy the router or the access points or the mesh kit that are Wi-Fi 6 until you've got at least three or four of those devices that you use all the time in your house because the biggest benefits from the upgrade are going to come in you know less congestion when you have a lot of devices online. So... It's it's more expensive to buy a Wi-Fi 6 router or access point right now. Right. They're brand new. And the other thing about that is, you know, there's so much variability in, like, what's a good router and what's a good access point, and spending more money doesn't always get you the better thing. It's hard to tell right now if, if people haven't really been using the ones that are freshly out. Exactly. And there's so few of them out there, and they're expensive. So I'm about to step up my Wi-Fi 6 you know, router testing game and just spamming out a ton of those things, testing everything I can get my hands on. Right now, you shouldn't be rushing to buy one of those unless you're just really in the market. Um, and as I'm testing those to begin with, most of my testing is going to be focused on how well they work with existing devices because, you know, for the next year or two, that's what most of us are going to have. We're going to have a whole bunch of 802.11ac, I'm sorry, Wi-Fi 5 devices, and maybe one or two Wi-Fi 6. And that's the way you do that. Upgrade the devices first, then upgrade the router later when it gets cheap and when you've got the devices to take advantage of it.
0: Right, it's a rolling upgrade, and I don't know about you, Jim, but I I can't afford to go replace every last piece of electronics in my house uh, each time we have a new protocol out there.
1: No, definitely not. But have your eye out when you buy a new laptop, when you buy a new phone, when you buy a new whatever. Try and score one that's got Wi-Fi 6.
0: Right, I mean, uh, I see you note in your coverage over at ours that uh, laptops with the latest generation of Intel chips have it baked right in.
1: Yeah, correct. Uh, if you get either Ice Lake or Comet Lake Intel, you will absolutely have Wi-Fi 6 because it's baked right into the CPU. Uh, there are a few other chipsets out there to get Wi-Fi 6, but for right now in the laptop world, I think the Intel stuff is about all that you're going to see in the real world. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether that is baked into uh, you know AMD's next generation of mobile Ryzen's or not.
0: We will just have to wait and see on that one, I think. With Wi-Fi 6, we're
1: also finally getting a security
0: upgrade, right?
1: Yep, uh, WPA 3 is mandatory for Wi-Fi 6. Uh, unfortunately, they watered down a lot of the WPA 3 requirements, um, but it is still definitely a significant upgrade over you know WPA 2, and uh, you you will have to have that support built into your device, whether you're talking about a you know, phone or a laptop or the router itself, with Wi-Fi 6, so eh, an upgrade's an upgrade, right? Yeah, and I mean, after I've just spent all that money replacing all of my
0: gear, I don't want the neighbors to be stealing my super-fast internet. Well, one of those fancy new devices is the yet-to-be-released Pixel 4, and as usual, Jim, there have been a ton of leaks.
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know if you can really call those leaks. Uh, I refuse to believe that Google is so incompetent that with literally every single flagship phone release— Oops, we accidentally let somebody take it into a bar and just, like, leave it around for somebody to pick up. That's not a leak. That's, that's, that's PR. <laughs> that's just their weird PR campaign, yeah. On the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of excited about the Pixel 4 because, you know, the cameras just keep getting better and better. And I was ah, I was already blown away by how good the camera was in my Pixel 2 XL, to be honest with you. Yeah, I'm, I've certainly been enjoying the camera on my Pixel 3. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the Wi Fi 6 support and a faster processor is always nice. But, uh, you know, the one thing that I look forward to the added capabilities of the new camera with the multiple lenses and the yada, yada, yada. But, man, That thing is just uglier than a homemade sin. That little square excrescence that sticks out of the upper left corner of the back of the phone so far that, you know, in a non-text pic of the, uh, you know, Pixel 4 from the, uh, you know, quote, leaked, unquote, unit that the Vietnamese YouTubers had, that that camera bulge sticks out so far, that that little black square, you can see it casting a shadow on the phone. I'm just like, you've got to have a case for that thing, man, because that's just not going to be Okay. It seems we're in for that as
0: the latest iPhones, well, they've got something similar.
1: Yeah, they really do. You know, to start out with, I really wanted to blast Google over, you know, making this huge, ugly block camera thing stick out of the phone. I'm like, just look over there at the iPhone 11, man. I mean, yeah, everybody jokes about it looking like a Remington Shaver, the War of the Worlds with, you know, these these big round (laughs) camera lenses, you know, sticking out of it. But, you know, it's smooth, it's sleek, because, you know, I've been seeing all of Apple's promo photos of these things, Uh, you know, I watched the entire product launch, I thought I'd seen these things from all angles, and I thought, yeah, it's a little weird, because it's got all these big, round lenses, but it's smooth, it's sleek, it's not. Uh, You know, over at ours, we covered the iPhone 11, and, you know, the, the pic at the top of our article over there, you can see, you know, again, it's... Those big three lenses everybody's seen, they are actually mounted in a little square block up on the upper left of the phone. And, again, it sticks out far enough to cast a shadow. Do you know, Wes, as long as we're picking on the iPhone, you know how I love to pick on iPhones. I do. I do. There's one other thing I want to say about that product launch. Well, actually, there's two other things I want to say about that product launch. One is that uh, Apple made a big deal out of the fact that they have added slow motion video to the capability of the front camera on the phone you mean slow fees, Jim I mean slow fees. God help us all. Uh, the other thing that got me in that product launch and really just had me questioning my life decisions that I was watching two hours of this the uh, you know the guy that that is presenting the iPhone eleven pro and its amazing video taking capabilities and don 't get me wrong um you know i, I don 't know how much a normal you know, average everyday person is going to be able to do with the camera. They're obviously using, you know, world-class videographers to take these demo videos with these phones. But I will say it's pretty impressive. They can take, you know, what looks like a $100,000, you know, uh, New York City ad agency, you know, advertisement, they can shoot that from an iPhone, whoever they had to get to do it. That's pretty impressive. You know, credit where credit's due. But towards the end of this piece, where, you know, th- this guy is is pushing the video-taking capabilities, he starts gushing about, if you open up the camera app, you'll see that they've actually, they've laid out the controls inside the app with a new font called F5. And then he says, and this is a direct quote, it's so pro, you're gonna love it. <laughs> it's so pro.
0: Hey, I mean, I love me a good font, but that's a bit over the top.
1: It's so pro, Wes.
0: speaking of Google devices there, Jim, you shared a bit of information with me about Chromebooks that, despite having recently talked about them over on Linux Unplugged, I was a bit surprised to learn. You got to be talking about the expiration date, Wes. Yeah, that's that's the one.
1: Yeah, that one blew my mind, too. Um, we had a little bit of Google news that I covered over at ours, and uh, so... The Google folks wanted to push out a notification that you were, you know, approaching the end of life of your device and it would no longer get security updates. They wanted you to get that notice a little bit quicker. So they pushed a code to the the dev and the canary builds of Chrome OS that would, in theory, give you like a six-month notification rather than just telling you you're no longer getting security updates. It would let you know this is going to happen in six months. You should start planning. There was a bug in the code, though, and what actually ended up happening is every single Chromebook that got that code notified its user, six months from now, you're going to stop getting updates. Uh, now, the good news was this was only in the dev and the Canary build. People who've probably opted in to, to that sort of thing. Exactly. Uh, you know, If you know anything about Chrome OS builds, uh, it ranges from stable through beta through developer to Canary. So, you know, we're talking about not even beta. We're talking about alpha code. The folks that got these messages were in the best possible position to... To deal with it. It did not reach the general population. But so the interesting thing to me reporting on this is, wait a minute, Chromebooks have an expiration date? And uh, yep, Chromebooks have an expiration date. If you have a Chrome OS device, uh, six and a half years from the date that the motherboard that device is based on was was certified, um, it's going to stop getting security updates. And uh, the the pop up that comes up to warn you about this tells you, you know, you're you're going to need to replace this device because it's received its last update. Yikes! Okay, and as as you said
0: there, but maybe not super noticeable. It's not when you bought the device; it's 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 when that
1: product line was launched. Correct. And uh, you know, it's it's not even when the product line is launched; it's when that motherboard certified. Like once that motherboard got entered in, because you have to understand the way Google does the updates on the Chromebooks. It's not like a normal laptop. Uh, the, the builds for Chrome, for Chrome OS on Chromebooks and Chromeboxes and all these Chrome OS devices, it's more like a phone OS build, you know? Uh, the drivers are very specifically tailored to that exact set of hardware. All customized for that thing. Yeah, you can't load. Uh, you can't load an update that w- you Well, you can't load a Chrome OS build that was intended for an Acer C720 onto, you know, like a Samsung, uh, you know, Chromebook Four. That um, they're. They're completely separate. I would assume that's part of the reason why Google felt they needed to, you know, end updates for these things is because they're only expected to have like a phone-like lifecycle, and each one of them is really more of like a separate thing you have to deal with than you would see with, you know, a more mainstream operating system like Windows or, uh, you know, or Linux. Now, what do you think about the argument that? There's got to be some
0: life cycle, right? At some point the device's usability be- decreases and from the Google side, well, it, it costs money to provide security updates and surely they can't do it forever,
1: so there's got to be some end date, right? I think the answer there is the only reason that Google can't do it forever is because they've decided to, you know, make these crazy microscopically tailored, you know, builds for each hardware design. Had they chosen to do, you know, a more universal operating system installation that, you know, could just Load whatever drivers it needed to, like a mainstream Linux distribution, it really wouldn't be a big deal to support all this stuff for longer because, you know, you'd just be getting your regular Chrome OS updates to your regular Chrome OS installation. As a matter of fact, you can do exactly that. You just can't do it with Chrome OS. If you don't know already, Chrome OS is actually a derivation of Chromium OS. Chromium OS is uh, completely free and open source. Chrome OS is a proprietary build built on top of that. Now, there are some other providers of Chromium OS distributions. You can either install Chromium OS completely native. I've seen that done on, on laptops in the wild. There's also an outfit called Neverware that makes a Chromium OS distribution called CloudReady. And you can load CloudReady on your Chromebook that has, you know, passed its expiration date, and it will work just fine. And it will look and feel and work, you know, for the most part, just like it did when it was a Chrome OS device. You also, of course, have the option of saying the heck with all this Chrome OS stuff completely, and I'm just going to install Linux on it and use as a Linux box, and that works fine. Yeah, really, that seems like um, something to pay
0: attention to. If you know you're a consumer interested in that sort of thing, or maybe you're a sysadmin somewhere and you've got a fleet of Chromebooks, it's important to think about just how long those might be useful.
1: You know, most of us we're not buying expensive Chromebook hardware. Uh, you know, I've bought Acer C720s and uh, you know the the Samsung low end Chromebooks, 11 inch devices. They cost you know 200 bucks or slightly less, brand new. Uh, six and a half years out of an entire laptop you bought for two hundred bucks new—that's really not a bad lifespan at all. And it's questionable how many more years you're going to get out of something that was a bottom of the barrel Celeron build, you know, from six and a half years ago. Right. So it's always been kind of pants on head crazy to me that Google is trying to convince people to invest in you know these Pixel Books, these really expensive Chromebooks that have you know Intel Core processors and more RAM and a larger hard drive. I'm like, it's still freaking Chrome OS, man. It's just a browser in a box. What's the point in a 128 gig solid state drive when everything's getting saved on a Google drive anyway? Um, You know, why do I need the core CPU when honestly that bottom of the barrel Celeron, it works great for doing anything that you really can realistically do on a Chromebook in my experience, because you're just running stuff in the browser. I already thought that was kind of nuts, but now you really want to look at this. Okay, so it's one thing to say that your $200 Celeron machine, you know, is no longer going to be supported in six and a half years from when the motherboard was certified, which already may mean only in five years from when it was even available to buy, right? Yeah. You know, the, the Pixel Book has been out for a year now. It's still $1,000 at Best Buy. Now you're telling me I can't use my $1,000 laptop in five or six years because, you know, we're just going to EOL it and you can't have any updates for it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Now, that's that's a problem.
0: Right. I mean, if you weren't already just going to use it to to put Linux on, that's about, well, you'd be able to use it for it at that point. And that's that's probably
1: not what you wanted. And honestly, you know, if you're going to spend $1,000 on a Linux laptop, you, you can do better than there that. There are other options. Yeah, there really right. are. There really are.
0: Back in episode four hundred and three, you and I talked a bit about quantum key distribution. Sounds like there's a
1: little bit of an update, or at least maybe kind of yeah, and kind of no. Uh, so, <sighs> quantum key distribution is this really interesting technology where you have, uh, you know, basically dark fiber from point A to point B, and you you move just your key over this point-to-point fiber link, not the actual data. And the the thing that makes this secure, it makes it a good way to exchange static keys, is that you're not transmitting it in, you know, the normal digital sense, where it's like, okay, we send a pulse of light, and then no light, and then a pulse of light, and you put those pulses together to come up with your zeros and ones for binary, and that's your data, right? Right. Classical digital communication. Classical digital communications, but the, st- you know, your, your kind of waterfall here is you go from analog, and then you go to digital. Well, the next step up is quantum. Now, in quantum key distribution, you've still got that fiber link from point A to point B, but your data isn't encoded in pulses of light. It's actually encoded in the spins of individual photons going down the cable, and what makes this special is that if you try to tap that cable in any way, anything that you do in you know the midst of the cable, you try to tap it, you try to put a Y on it, you try to interact, even if you bend the cable too far, you'll have changed the characteristics of that cable, the way that it interacts with the photons, and they won't have the right spin on them anymore when they get to the other end. Right. So not only do you not have the data as you know. Uh, Charlie, in this whole, you know, classical Alice, Bob, Charlie. Alice and Bob want to communicate, and Charlie tries to get in the middle of it. Sneaky Charlie. Not only is Charlie unable to get any useful information out of tapping the middle of that cable because the spin of the photons isn't right yet at that part of the cable. It has to be, you know, it's not going to be right until the very end of it. He's also going to make it very obvious that he's tried to do something because now the spin's not going to be correct over on Bob's end either. And so everybody knows, okay, this is no longer trustworthy. We're not getting any data through it. We're not getting any data out of it. We need to figure out what went wrong and repair it.
0: Right. You're leveraging quantum physics properties of the system to securely transmit that cryptographic information.
1: Absolutely. I mean, in a way, you can think of the physical properties of that, you know, 50, 100-kilometer length of cable. You can think of the physical properties of that cable as, in a way, they're like a key in and of themselves. Because if you replace that cable, if you alter that cable, the data no longer works anymore. It's effectively encrypted with a key that you don't have. Now the problem with all this is that there's a limit to the length of cable that you can successfully transmit, you know, the, this quantum data over. Once you get over, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's like 150 kilometers is the absolute top end limit of how long you can have one of these links. You can no longer predict the spin of the photons on the other end well enough to be able to usefully send any data across it. So this is uh, this is kind of the big Achilles' heel for doing quantum key distribution is you can't do it over a distance greater than that. Now these same folks that I talked to back in May, uh, Quantum Exchange, they have come up with a new technology that they say will eliminate this distance limitation. Unfortunately, it's not quantum key distribution at all. Well, if it's not quantum key distribution, what is this other technology? So the other technology, it uh, you know, it boils down to a really uh, you know high quality source of entropy to use for you know generating random data. And then it revolves around the concept of you use this high quality source of entropy. And I believe that source is itself quantum. Uh, but it really doesn't matter because what you're getting out of it is entropy, just like any other kind of entropy. It's just really high quality, unlikely to have, you know, repeating patterns. So you generate a key from this high-quality entropy source, and then you transmit it not over the same data connection as the actual data itself. You transmit it by a different route. That might be, you know, a traditional point-to-point link. It might just be a different Internet provider, uh, you know, Maybe it's a laser link. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. The point is just that your key and the actual data that it encrypts are never transmitted over the same physical layer.
0: Ah, so we no longer have a special quantum link, but we're following back on a, on a different classical scheme to try to
1: retain some security benefits. Am I getting this right? Classical scheme indeed, Wes. Uh, they're basically splitting up the keg and the tab.
0: That's it for today's episode, but don't worry, you can find more TechSnap over at TechSnap.Systems. You can also find easy ways to get in touch or subscribe to the show. And make sure to check out our new show, Linux Headlines. It's Linux and open source headlines every weekday in three minutes or less. Of course, you can find all the other fine Jupiter Broadcasting productions over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. If you'd like more Jim, well, go find him writing over at ours or find him on Twitter. Jim, you're at JRSSnet. I'm there too. I'm at Wes Payne, and the network is at Jupiter Signal. Thank you all for joining us. See you in a couple weeks, everybody.